and welcome to She's the Boss Chats. I'm your host, Jules Brooke, and in the show, I interview amazing women and female founders about what it is that they're doing and why they're doing it. It's all about us lifting up the women around us. Emily Chadbourne, I am so excited to be interviewing you today for She's the Boss Chats. Thank you so much for agreeing to do it. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, my God, my pleasure. So let's start off by telling everybody about your magnificence. Let's tell them (laughs) what it is that you do right now. Well, it's a very loaded question. I mean, I I guess (laughs) for for the purpose of this podcast, the best way to describe myself would be a mindset coach. Um, But really what I do is I create a very safe space for women to come and work out who they really are away from the pressure and the expectation of society. So has that got a name? What do you call yourself? Or is that a business coach? That's what you... It's mindset. I, I mean, lots mindset of the women coach. that come and, and work with me are um, business orientated. Um, and we do, we talk about belief. We realize our own potential. We see our own strength, all of those wonderful, amazing things. But I think there's also room in today's society for discourse around dis- disattaching ourselves from the expectations of the have it all culture. Um, ah, and I, think, I love it. Yeah. I, I think acknowledging that we are living in the season that we are currently in. And making the most out of that and recognizing the wholeness of life. I just feel like we've lost this, um, the enchantment of living life whole. And wholeness means knowing that when the bad, shitty times come, which they do because this is life, that we have the emotional resilience and the capacity and the internal resources to deal with it. That doesn't mean it's going to hurt any less or it's going to feel any less gross and icky on the inside. But to understand the more spiritual concepts, really basic spiritual concepts, like everything is transient. And, you know, I, I'm always handling my worst day. It's always <laughs> doable. Um, and so I think there's, you know, in the the wellness trend of personal development and manifestation, we've kind of lost the art of resilience. I think we're all chasing this sort of utopia, this idea of the million dollar business and the time freedom and the financial freedom and having it all. Yes. And and perfect relationships and delightful children and absolutely. And it all looks great on Instagram. (laughs) There's a reality to having that stuff. Yeah. There's a real reality to having a million dollar business. And a lot of people I actually don't want the reality of it. They just want the outcome of it. So it's about learning how to navigate those things and to find out what you really want, because, you know, the world is full of choice, but the paradox of choice is that with too much of it, we become paralyzed by it. That's right. And at the moment, I guess these days, the choice is limitless because there are, and the barriers to entry are very low. And so, yeah, we're completely spoiled for choice. So, Mm. so how did how did this come about and did it have anything to do with the pandemic is I guess something that is striking me because when you talk about resilience that boy oh boy have we had a big test of that one recently yeah I mean the pandemic it was a very interesting time I think the pandemic it's like it brought this magnifying glass Mm. over us didn't it I think we began to recognize the parts of us that needed work and um, I certainly saw even in some of my social circles, um, sort of, I guess, true colors of some people and, you know, how well, 
uh, where their values lay, I guess is the best way to say that. So I think it was a really interesting time. I mean, hand on heart, and I know this is against the grain to say, but I, I think I, I believe in seeing the full spectrum of reality. I actually had quite a good pandemic, relatively. You know, yeah, me too. Well, she's the boss came out of the pandemic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Amplify, which is my membership container, came out of the pandemic. I already worked from home. A lot of my stuff is already online. I have a lovely flat. I have a lovely dog. All of my friends live within the five k radius. When we had the the, oh, that's great. Yeah, right. Limit, and I, you know, I I kind of thrived. If I'm going to be honest, and I. And I think part of that is circumstantial. Absolutely. You know, I'm not homeschooling children. I'm not, I don't have health issues. You know, I'm very aware of all of that uh, contextual privilege that I had at the time. But I also think a a big part of it was acceptance of what was. Yes. And being able to be okay with, with who I am and being capable of spending a lot of time on my own. Because I was going to say, do do you live alone? Mm, completely so, alone. Right. Just, just me and my dog. Right. Okay. So you do mm. have a dog, yes. <laughs> someone to cuddle up to. But Absolutely. yeah, so because that was, for me, that was one of the other groups of people, I guess, that I really felt for was people that were on their own. But um, I assume you're not in a tiny, I, the ones I really thought were those ones who are in those tiny flats with no balcony mm. and no yeah. re- real way to get outside. Yeah. Which really would have tough. been so tough. And again, I think, you know, absolutely recognizing my privilege in in my experience. Um, but I do think, again, it's like how you approach or how you choose to relate to a situation yeah. that will determine your experience of that situation. And I think very yes. early on, the first thing that I did was I threw myself into service. I was it's like so many people in all of my family are over in the UK. Yeah. And when I came to live in Australia 11 years ago, it was under the understanding that at any point I could get on a plane and go back home and see my family. And to suddenly have that, you know, the moment Taken we closed away. the borders, I remember calling my sister in floods of tears, like really panicked. Um, you know, what does this mean that I can't get home whenever I need to? And so I thought, well, I have a choice here. I can either sit in my own head and frantically worry about that and work myself up and catastrophize about that. And I don't know about you, Jules, but my brain loves to go to the worst case scenario whenever <laughs> it possibly can. My favorite place to hang out is uh, in my right. victimhood. So I said, okay, well, what's, what do I know that I can do to counter that? And so I just said, well, if I'm feeling like this other and people will I am be. here in this privilege, then other people are definitely feeling like this. And I know a lot of other people are having a much harder time, you know, they're homeschooling or they've got sick parents or they themselves are immunocompromised. So I just started going live. I have a a free Facebook group. It's called Unashamedly Human. And I went live every single, thank you. (laughs) I went live every single morning at 7am. Monday, uh, initially, I think for the first month, it was seven days a week. Right. 7am every single morning. I got out of bed never had any makeup on I was sat there with a cup of coffee and my morning breath and I would just (laughs) talk and you know either share a story or share a breathing technique or we do a group meditation sometimes there were three people online sometimes there were 30 people online sometimes there were 100 people online and I just think putting myself into the space of service was the thing that really pulled me through and then from that space of service 
I began to realize because I'd been working in short group programs. I'd been doing lots of keynote speaking. I'd been doing lots of live workshops um, and I had lots of one-on-one clients. But I think the the uh, uh, bringing, to pe- bringing people together in from all these different contexts, they were having such different experiences. But being human is the same, right? Yes. Our feelings are the same. Our fears are the same. Our needs and our wants and our desires are the same. Can I be safe? Can I be heard? Can I be loved? Can I be known? And that really paved the way for me to create Amplify, which is now my my signature course. Um, it's a it's a minimum of a four month stay, and then you just go into a rolling membership. And what does um, Amplify do? So this is all about, we, we work through four different modules and it's all about understanding our mind, understanding how okay. our perception of the world creates our experience of the world, how we get to choose and create space for ourselves when we choose to take a step back and think about the world differently, how we are not our thoughts and how we can relate differently to the stories that we've had. Um, you know, it's not necessarily therapy, but a lot of healing does go on. A lot of forgiveness I was gonna say, happens. It- very timely, really, out of yeah. uh, out of that that particular time when people, I think, did get that moment to sit back and look. And some people didn't like what they saw, Absolutely. and other people, which is you know totally understandable, and gave us the opportunity to make change happen, which mm. is my favourite thing. And I'm always <laughs> looking at what don't I like. You know, I think again in in. I guess more of a sort of toxic manifestation world. It's very much like think positively and always think about where you're going and always look at what's great in your life. But I think there's real power in sitting back and being like, oh, something here feels crunchy. Something here doesn't feel good. And maybe it felt good six months ago or three years ago or 10 years ago. But I'm an evolving, moving, changing, (laughs) emergent being. And so I'm always checking in with myself. I'm always assessing is this thing that was working for me still working for me? Whether it be yeah. a relationship, whether it be a friendship, whether it be a, a meal plan that I'm on, the type of <laughs> exercise that I'm doing. Um, yeah, right. You know, all sorts of different, the, the, my spirituality, that's that's a, a changing thing for me as well. Um, and I think, I don't, I think in our culture, we don't have space to have those conversations Well, I certainly think pre-pandemic, nobody made the space. Everybody was on the hamster wheel, running around, blah, blah, Mm. blah, 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 not even thinking about it. And then suddenly we're given all this time. And Mm. certainly, you know, same as you are in my circle of friends, lots and lots of women were really, really struggling. Mm. Um, And it was, and for me, I did exactly like you. It was like, okay, so how can we bring everyone together and we can all prop each other up? so to speak. Mm-hmm. And I started doing Zoom lunches, which, you know, three years later, I'm still doing. So oh, that's fantastic. But it, yeah. it is, it was exactly for exactly the same reason as you. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I reckon now what we should do is find out a little bit more about Emily, and then we can come back to some of these topics when we get up to today. So can you take me back to where did you grow up? What sort of size family do you have? What do your mum and dad do? And then we'll move on to school. (laughs) I grew up in the middle of Somerset in the UK. Oh my goodness, did you? In a tiny little village, which is completely insignificant to anybody who doesn't live there. Right. And I, we moved there when I was two. My dad still lives in the same house. um, Right. And I'm now 41. So yeah, he's he's been there a (laughs) while. He's been there a while. Um. And I have two older sisters who. Oh, nice. So you're I the baby. Adore. I'm the baby, not just of 
my immediate family, but my whole family. So my cousins are all older than me. And right. um, I was a welcome surprise if you asked my parents. If yeah. you asked my sisters, I was a mistake. <laughs> and and I absolutely played out the role of baby of the family very well. In fact, if I'm going to be honest, there are times where I still play out the role of baby of the family very well. <laughs> yeah. And I was I was lucky, very blessed with my sisters. They're two wonderful women. And while we weren't particularly close throughout my childhood and I think because of the age gap as adults yeah. um, they have proven to be two of my favorite people in the entire world oh what a beautiful thing to say about your sisters mm. I love that so what did mum and dad do my dad was in the navy originally um okay. he moved around so my eldest sister had seven primary schools in seven years they moved around every single year that's um, like me and then oh really and I <laughs> well think, my dad you know, was in the british army same thing ah, and so we just we moved countries and schools i think i worked out by the time i came here at 12 i'd been to something like nine schools gosh mm. yeah i mean i suppose there's a resilience that you learn i don't know well, did I've, you I've, find I've, that my theory is thing? well i loved it but I, my mm. and i constantly really crave change and travel now. My mum keeps going, what is it about you? And I'm like, think about it, mum. Think about my childhood. It was always moving around. <laughs> but I always say that it it affects people one of two ways, I think. Either you become quite introverted, very comfortable in your own company and very used to moving around and keeping your own kind of bubble, or mm. you come, become like me and you learn how to make friends really, really fast. Mm. And I think that it, it affects different people in different ways. But for me, it was, mm. you know, I can walk into a group of people now and pretty much make myself a friend That's pretty such fast. such a good skill. Do you know who else was um, uh, Forces Babies? Uh, who? Dawn French and Jennifer Saunders. Yes, I would totally believe <laughs> I, that, actually. And, you, and I, at the moment I found that out, um, I was like, oh, of course you are. Makes, Makes sense. total sense. Yeah. Yes. Mm. Yeah, amazing. Okay, so what was school like for you? Did you Were you good at it? Did you enjoy it? I was good at it. Um, again, I think I, I was desperate to go to school because my sisters were there. So I always right. felt like I was catching up. I always felt like, you know, when I took one step forward, they were also taking one step forward. And that was very hard for me. Um, right. And I think probably my mum was ready for me to go into full-time <laughs> education as well. Um, she I'd was a physiotherapist. Right. Same um, as my mum. Weird. Was, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think any mum would tell you that they're pretty keen for their kids to go to school by the time yeah. four, year, four or five comes around. Yeah. Um, and I went, yeah, I went to the village, the village school. It was small. And I think my first teacher was like, she was like an Enid Blyton character. And her name was Mrs. Simmons. And she was the most gentle, nurturing, kind woman. And I, and I think I had a really good experience in primary school. Secondary school, not so much. I think there is nothing worse, in my opinion, than a teenage girl. And oh. <laughs> I, uh, they are a breed right. of their own. Um, and I think I, I, I found myself in a very um, contrasting place in secondary school, which was that I, I wasn't a popular kid, but I wasn't a not popular kid. Right. And so kind of sitting in that middle ground, it felt like a, a social survival course for me as opposed to anything else. Right. Always trying to work out where school? I belonged. 
Was it a big school? Wasn't a particularly big school. Having left, Um, you know, a small, tiny private um, primary school, felt big in comparison to the to the primary school, but. I mean, when, you know, I look at the school that my nieces and nephews who grew up in London went to and I was like, oh, God, no, it's you right. know, in a couple of thousand people <laughs> or whatever. Um, but it was a very wide range, a huge. I mean, people back then went to school based on geography and nothing else. Yeah. You yeah. know, back in the 80s and the 90s. And there was a wide range of um, uh, social class and academia ability um, inside the school and probably again, back in the nineties, I think education was very different then really, unless you were academically gifted, (laughs) oh, I hope it was different really, unless you were academically gifted, you know, there wasn't really much room for anything else. Yeah. Um, you know, I, my parents threw me on the stage at the age of five because I came out with jazz hands, according to my father, (laughs) midway through a conversation and with my jazz hands going, he says, um, and, and so they, you know, they didn't have a drama department, yeah. You know, there wasn't any, I felt like I didn't really have much space for creativity there. Very, very, very luckily, I, I found academia relatively easy. Um, so I, I kind of feel like I sailed through the academic part of school. But for me, the social part of school was, was, was challenging. very challenging. Mm. Okay, so what did you decide to do when you finished? It Was uni a kind of a given that you were going to go there? Had your sisters gone to uni? <laughs> yeah, uni was an expectation. Um, all of yeah. my cousins, both of my sisters went to university. I did try, um, I remember I was going out with a boy called Tony Martin at the time. And all I really wanted to do was finish up school and live with Tony Martin. That's all I wanted to do. And I remember my <laughs> mum turning around to me and saying, you are going to university. Like that's not, and I was 18. I was a full, I was an adult, but I remember her turning around to me and saying, there is no way that you are not going to university. So, um, right. So what did so you do? I did. Oh, this is a great one. So I thought, okay, <laughs> if I have to go to university, I, you know, what, what would be like a sensible thing to do that would mean that I'll, I'm basically guaranteed a job at the end of it. And right. so I thought primary oh, school teaching. Very sensible thinking of you. Very sensible. So I thought primary school teaching, I really enjoyed primary school. Um, I you wanted to you know, be your teacher, Miss Simmons, again yes, for other kids. Yes, I could be Mrs. Simmons. I could be an Enid Blyton teacher for other children. <laughs> so I went to Winchester University, um, which is beautiful, beautiful city. It is beautiful in, city. It's so lovely and quite small, which I felt comfortable With in. With cathedral that, you know, in the middle of it. Gorgeous. So much history and oh, it's, it's delightful. Um, and I did two mm. years of primary school teaching, and I majored in drama. And at the end of the second year, I was put on a placement in a school that didn't like children and didn't, the teachers didn't like each other. It was a very toxic environment. And at the time they were, had just introduced Ofsted. They just introduced the numeracy hour and the literacy hour and all of the subjects had to be taught separately. And I know I just remember going to school and like doing the Romans for a term and just, we just learned about the Romans. And in that broad topic, we learned everything that we needed to learn yes. in terms of maths or history or whatever. And it wasn't like that. And I just, I just thought, what am I doing? And at the same time I broke up with Tony Martin Oh no! and I discovered boys and booze and low level drug taking. And I thought, do you know what? I'm just going to go out and I'm going to have, have fun. Have fun. But I really didn't want to leave university because I was having so much fun. And so I walked into my tutor's office and I said, oh, is there any chance that I can transfer into something that's just not teaching? I don't care what I study. 
I just don't want to leave university and I just don't want to do teaching. And he said, okay, well, why don't you go into the second year of a BA um, and do a drama degree with education as a supporting subject. So that's what nice. I did. I've not, not used my degree since. I um, <laughs> well, you probably only, have, paid but off, just... <laughs> only paid off my student loan about three months ago. And oh, I have the most delightful and supportive and chosen family type friends from my university days that were worth every single penny of that student loan. I had, I had, I really worked out what it, who I was. Um, and I really, I found this group of people that, that got me and I got them. And like I say, we're still friends. In fact, two of them got married to each other. Um, in July. So I, I went back for a wedding in July. We're still very close. It's, it's really delightful. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. So what did you do when you graduated with your sort of funny old degree? <laughs> My funny old degree that really didn't mean anything. I This whole time I'd been working um in a restaurant in Winchester. And I remember my dad, when I was 14 years old, my dad sat me down and he opened up an Abbey National bank account for me. Now, Abbey National doesn't exist anymore, but I remember he put in the allowance that the government gave him for me. So child support. Family allowance. Whatever, family allowance, whatever it was. He deposited that into my bank every single month. And I think it was about 20 pounds. Right. Which in today's money is much more than twenty quid, but it still still wasn't a lot. And he said, if you 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 have that twenty pounds a month, and you have everything to do with your education and school paid for, and all obviously bills, food, everything paid for, but anything else, clothes that you want to buy, cinema that you want to go to, any anything else that you want for yourself, you have to buy yourself with that twenty pounds. And if it's not enough, you go out and you get a job. Oh, and he's so, great. I went out and I got a job. And uh, so, yeah, my first job at the age of 14 was washing dishes in the local restaurant called The Old Forge for £2.50 an hour. And eventually <laughs> I think I graduated to waiting tables. So I've, all, I've always done uh, hospitality jobs. And uh, I've always been horrified by the pay, it, especially oh. when, I, when I first got to London and I remember going to a pub, having worked in St Kilda at the pub where I was getting, I don't know, 25 bucks an hour or something. And I arrived in London and I went to the Moon Underwater in Chelsea and they offered me three pounds and three P minus tax. Oh. <laughs> and I just thought, God, why does anyone do this? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So there you go. It was, okay, it was so- poor, poor money. So, so I was working um, in a restaurant and I think by the time I graduated, I, I was assistant manager. I've always been um, a relatively good manager of people. Um, Right. The real story behind my promotion into management was that the, this particular restaurant I worked in was right next door to a pub and the pub was called the Royal Oak. And if you could get into the <laughs> Royal Oak before quarter to 11 at night, which is when the pubs closed in England, all the pubs closed at 11 o'clock, you got a lock in. Now, our <laughs> kitchen didn't close till half past 10, which meant you had to be really on the clean fast. up. You had to be fast. You had to be efficient to get next door to the pub. And one night I was just on with the B team and I was like, okay. I'm just going to have to take control of the situation. So I was like, you do this, you do that, you do that. I'm going to do this. And we're all going to get, and eventually management began to, to recognize that I had uh, a great command of the floor and, um, <laughs> and they promoted me and it was just became this running joke that they promoted me just so that I could, I could get everyone in line so that I could get next door to the pub, but it worked. And, um, and I spent years and years working in hospitality. I mean, I took a year out and I traveled Southeast Asia and I lived in Wellington in, in New Zealand for just under a year. 
Um, and yeah, just came back, lived in London and just worked in restaurants for a really long time. And I, I don't think I, I, I never had this understanding that I controlled my life. I just felt like life guided me. And you just took Does whatever came and in just, front of you. Yeah. To, yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I didn't, I didn't come out of the womb thinking I want to be this or this no. is my passion or this is my direction. I actually don't think many people do. Um, and so I was just headhunted or promoted or then somebody else would come along and be like, you should come and do this. I, I built a burger van and toured the uh, British you know, festival circuit one year for a company headhunted me to do that. So I had lots of fun doing it. I was in my twenties and I was living in London and I was living with my mates and all of my uni mates had moved to London by that time. I mean, I was having a fab time. Right. It was was really great fun. And then 30 was looming and, um, and I fell in love with an Australian and right. his visa was running out which are pretty hard to avoid in london there's so many of us very hard to avoid australians <laughs> in london uh especially in the in the hospitality yes, industry yes. and uh his visa was running out and he said why don't you come to to australia with me and i was like oh yeah that sounds like a good idea and this was also at the time when i could just sense you know friends were getting married and they were moving away from London back to home counties because they wanted to have children and they couldn't afford to have children or they couldn't afford to buy in London. And so I was sensing, um, a shift, a shift. And, and I knew that I, you know, I couldn't stay in my swinging twenties forever. So, um, (laughs) it just seemed like a fun idea. No, well, I mean that that I think that that makes sense. So you came to Australia with the boyfriend. Mm -hmm. Did you come to Melbourne? No, originally we went, we moved to Early Beach. Oh, wow. There's a big contrast from London. (laughs) And I did not do my research. Right. I have never had such a culture shock. I think, (laughs) I I think I thought that I knew who I was. Right. And when you actually took the scaffolding away and that scaffolding was my family, um, my friends and my work. Yeah. When you took that away and what you were left with was a girl who did not know who she was and did not know how to create and be actively creative in her life. Wow. So there's so, a big revelation to suddenly experience and understand yes. in a new country within a town in the middle of nowhere. In the so- middle of nowhere. My like and and you know, for anyone that hasn't been to England, really, there's no more than sort of five or six miles between villages in most places, no. maximum. So yeah. to have hours and hours from anywhere. So what did you do? Well, and this is, I think, the other thing that I wasn't expecting in London. I was being headhunted left, right, and centre. So by the time I left working in London, I was working as an operations manager for really big chain restaurants. And I was very good at my job and I knew I was good at my job. Everyone around me knew that I was good at my job. And I came to Australia and I thought, well, I'll just get that job. Like I've got this amazing CV, but the hospitality industry here is so, so vastly different, (laughs) mainly because geographically it has to be the supply chain means that you can't have, 
uh, I don't, I, you might the very well know groups. these sorts of restaurants like Pizza Express and yeah. Ask and Zizi, you know, where you've got two or 300 restaurants rolled out in every single town, some towns and cities, three or four of these restaurants. Yeah. Um, but it's not frozen food. You know, it's not. No, Pizza KFC Hut is probably the closest. Probably here. the closest. There, there, there yeah. used to be restaurants that you could go to, and they were in most towns, mm. um, like McDonald's. <laughs> yes. So here you've got those sort of McDonald's, and, that, and they all tend to be franchised as well. Anyway, and they're very sort of cheap and and low yes. rent kind of food. Whereas in England, there are upmarket versions of that. Yes, absolutely. You know, like Cafe Rouge was one of my favourites. The French yes, chain. Cafe Rouge. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> So there was none of that. Right. Um, and so I found my, and of course in Early Beach where there's three and a half people and one cafe. <laughs> um, and one manky pub. And one really manky pub. <laughs> and I, I, wasn't, I wasn't qualified to do anything else. You know, there's no, no one's advertising for someone with a degree in drama and education. Right. <laughs> That's another thing. <laughs> and so I walked into the, the nicer of the two cafes that were in, Early Beach, and I said, "Can I have a job?" And they said, "What's your experience?" And I kind of showed them my CV, and they were kind of put off by it, to be honest, because too, too I was overqualified, and they didn't want me, you know, butting in on their business or whatever. So I very humbly said, "Look, I'm just looking for any job, just any I'll job. Wash dishes. <laughs> I'll do anything." And they said, "Can you make coffee?" And I said, "Yeah, of course <laughs> I can make coffee." And so Mark, the owner, turned around and he said, "Okay, well, go go to the coffee machine now and make me a latte." And I made him a latte, and he took a sip of it. He looked me dead in the eye, and he went, "I hate to tell you this, but you cannot make coffee." <laughs> Well, I was thinking of English coffee compared to, you know, Australian baristas. Oh, very different kettle of fish. So I waited tables for 20 bucks an hour. Cash in hand. Oh, my God. Yeah. And it was. What a um, shock to the system. It was awful. I I actually can't believe you're still here. Nor can I. I (laughs) Really? Looking back on it now, it was awful. I. Um, I didn't have the emotional capacity or awareness to understand what was really going on. But now with hindsight, that was the beginning of really a, a four year period of depression right. um, where I completely lost my sense of self. And yeah, I mean, I don't know how my ex-boyfriend put up with me for as long as he did. We spent nine months in early beach and then I turned around and I said, um, we'd actually come down to Melbourne for a music festival. Right. And the moment I got to to Melbourne, I was like, oh, okay. There are cities so this, here. Yes, yeah, not just <laughs> Small ones, dry, but cities. arid land. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, we, we went back up to early beach after this music festival and I turned around to him and I said, we we either move to Melbourne within the next two to three months or I get on a plane and I go back to England. Like I can't, I cannot stay here. There is nothing for me here. So bless him. We, he basically sold off the business that he had spent nine months creating up there and we moved down to Melbourne and, um, and it did get better. It did get better. But it got better because I found social, I'm a very social person and um, my ex, his name's Ryan. Um, he's still to this day one of my favorite people in the world, but he was originally from Melbourne. So he already had a friend base here. So I was very lucky. I kind of just walked into almost a ready-made friendship group and, and I made a lot of effort and I spent a lot of time, you know, organizing parties and dinner parties and making sure that whenever it was someone's birthday, I made a big fuss and I made a cake and I really invested in, in a, in my social network here. And actually I think it was my mum. I, I went home one Christmas and I, 
they were driving, mum and dad were driving me back to the airport to come back to Australia and I was crying because I didn't want to come back. <laughs> and um, Paints a great picture. <laughs> doesn't it? And I remember mum saying at Heathrow Airport, she looked me straight in the eye and she said, um, actually she, my parents call me Bod for reasons that will remain unexplained, but um, she looked at me in the eye and she said, Bod, you have to give it a go. She said, go back and just give it a go. Give it your best shot. Put down roots, make some friends, do everything that you can so to that if work. you choose to come back to England, you know that you have you gave it your best shot. Oh, isn't she Australia. a wise woman? Mm, she really was. And so I did that and it, and it did and it changed everything. I mean, I, I still spent three years working in restaurants for 20 bucks an hour, hating that sort of aspect of my life. And also I was, I'm talking like I was in my mid thirties by this time, right? Still waiting tables. My friends are buying their first houses. They're getting promoted, you know. And your coworkers are all 10 years younger than you. And my coworkers are all in their early twenties. Right. So it was a very discombobulating time. And I, I really, I've never <laughs> That's felt That's a great so word. I thought I was the only one who said that. <laughs> oh, I love that word. I love the way <laughs> so it feels in my mouth. Yes. It's and, amazing. Um, yeah. I mean, I just felt lost. That's the only, that's the only way to say it. My boyfriend and I then split up. Um, so you're even more lost? Even more lost. I think by that time, actually by that time I had found coaching. So a friend of mine had said, why don't you go and see a life coach? And I said, because that sounds wanky. <laughs> I, couldn't, like, I just had this sort of Tony Robbins, rah, rah, get to yeah. the back of the room kind of concept about what a life coach was. And to be fair, it wasn't far off that. But um, <laughs> but my friend, bless her, she turned around and she said, okay, fine, don't go and see a life coach. But if you are not going to actively do anything to make your life better, you have got to stop complaining about it. And <laughs> it was everything the that whole I needed whinging to palm hear. Thing. <laughs> yeah, I hate my job. I hate my job. I hate my job. Yeah. What are you doing about just, it? Nothing. I hate my job. I, I hate my hate job. <laughs> yeah. So I went. I did like a free weekend um, at a, a coaching place here in Melbourne, and it was honest to God, it was the first time I ever heard anybody talk about. I guess manifestation, but they didn't frame it like manifestation. Uh, it was the first time I ever heard about taking responsibility or shifting my wow. perspective or the way that I see the world isn't the way that other people see the world or the action that I choose not to take is also action. You know, all of those yes. things I just had just never even occurred to me. Um, right. And so I came away from that weekend and I was like, I'm going to enroll in that course. And then I didn't for about six months because it was just so overwhelming. I think the idea of, of doing that level Delving of Delving into yourself. Yeah. And I have a huge amount of patience. A lot of my market um, will often be like, oh, I really want to work with you. I really want to work with you. I really want to work with you. And I'm like, okay. And like, I just, I, you, you, you just, you have to come when you're ready. Yes. Um, because it is, it, you are, you are going to find out some things about yourself that you are instantly going to have to forgive yourself for. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's a big ask. And, you know, all worried about what, it, how it's going to affect your relationships and how it's, you know, other people are going to react when you do this type of work. And, um, but it did, it, it, I mean, changed my life. So you did that and it changed Mm. you. How did you move from being the recipient of that kind of coaching Mm. to moving into doing it yourself? Or was there a step in between? I, 
I don't really remember the moment where I thought I'm going to go for this, but I do remember the moment when I thought to myself, I cannot spend another year fetching beers for table 23. Like, and I think I had begun to be quite bad is the wrong word, but I probably didn't, wasn't bringing the best attitude to the workplace either. I just so resented being there. And one of the trainers in, um, in the place where I was doing my training took me to one side one day and he said, what are you doing? And I, this is like the third, fourth, fifth training, but like they happened like two or three months apart from each other. Right. I said, what do you mean? He was like, you have such potential, Emily. I can see it in you. I see your potential. He was like, yeah. what are you doing? Cause the, the place that I was working was across the road and he came in every now and then for a meal and I would often serve him. He was like, what are you doing? Wasting your life in that place across the road. And I was like, Oh, and it, it, it was almost Ouch. like a dad pep talk. <laughs> yeah. It was yeah. absolutely what I needed. I needed, uh, this sounds awful to say, but I needed someone to be disappointed in me other than just me. Yeah. Yeah. And I could see the disappointment in his face that I was not taking the chance on myself or backing myself. And so then I, um, I thought to myself, okay, I literally have nothing to lose. I have (laughs) not like, like I was so embarrassed, I suppose, disappointed in myself that I was 35 by this time waiting tables not that there's anything wrong with that though i know lots of no, girls who love not. hospitality it's it, their career and they love it but i didn't love but it there's a lot to be said for realizing your own potential and not leaving it too late yes and so you were obviously at that crossroads yeah absolutely and so i think i just um I just started doing like Facebook lives. And again, so grateful to my parents for throwing me on stage at the age of five, because I, I don't have that same fear of public speaking that so many other people have. That wasn't a barrier for me. I didn't ever right. think, what if I run out of something to say, or what if someone asks me they a question, I don't know me. the answer. <laughs> yeah. That just didn't, it just didn't bother me. I, I really stepped into. That's, that's great. Cause there are so many women and anyone listening, I'm always saying, get on the lives. People want to see you. They want to get to know mm. you and it's people go, way. Oh, but I'll have to wait till I've got makeup on and I look great. And it's like, you won't be relatable. I no. always remember there's a fabulous woman that um called Annie that I knew for many years and she was she her business was teaching photographers how to have a business so mm. very niche female photographers at that but I'll never forget her saying to me that she always used to get jujied up and you know hair and makeup done and all the rest of it and the women would all come in and um and then one year one time she slept in or didn't feel up to it or whatever and turned up at the front door with no makeup, hair everywhere and said to everyone, I'm so sorry. And one after another, the women came in going, at last, I feel like I can talk to you now because you're like us. And I feel like a lot of people don't realise that it makes you unrelatable and unattainable if you, you know, do try and make yourself too, Uh, I don't know. Absolutely. And I think especially in our current climate with the influencer and content creator yes. culture where we are feeling uh, the disparity more and more between rich and poor and mm. uh, and famous and non-famous. And you thin know? and fat and, thin and fat fashionable and, and not and all those sorts of things, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think TikTok's done a little bit to kind of balance that trend a little bit. Oh, hello, my dog's just waking up. <laughs> I think TikTok's helped a little bit to balance that trend because it, it does tend to be a bit more you know, real life behind the scenes, unfiltered 
um, less curated than the Instagram culture. Yeah. But, you know, living through the rise of Instagram was, was tough for everyone. <laughs> it was. I, I actually avoided it completely. I stuck with Facebook and Did then you, I moved yeah. to LinkedIn. <laughs> mm, I don't blame you. Which, yeah. which I think probably, as even as you're saying now, is making me think, actually, maybe it's not such a bad thing that I don't know my way around Insta. Yeah. So, so what do you do next? There you are. You've come to this revelation. Um, yes. You know, you're, right. the guy the has been story. all disappointed in you. So, yeah, yeah. tell me now. <laughs> so I started, you, you know, talking about general mindset stuff to begin with. I, you know, it was just sharing concepts as I was learning them really and relating them. I've always been, my grandma was a phenomenal storyteller. She's told the most beautiful stories. And I, if, if I'm a quarter of the storyteller that she was, then I would be happy. Um, I don't think I'm quite at the quarter yet, but oh, I'm trying. I think you're and a brilliant storyteller. And I fabulous. discovered you through those Facebook lives, I think. Oh, as really? As you're talking. Think, yeah, yeah, and you have such a lovely way of talking. You could just sit and listen to you for hours. Oh, so. thank you. Well, that's I've, directly as a result of uh, my grandma, Chad Bourne, bless her. Oh, um, so here I was telling stories. Bless my grandma. Um, <laughs> and the course that I was doing around coaching, it had a big, huge business component. And I sort of started paying a bit more attention to that kind of stuff. And of course you're told you niche. If you're a coach, you've got a niche, you've got a niche, you've got a niche. And somebody turned yeah. around to me and they said, Hey, um, now you're single and you're dating. Why don't you go into the dating niche? Because it's fun. It's really quite easy to market right. dating because there's a very yeah. strong problem that you are solving. And the problem is that you don't have a boyfriend. Yes. Very strong, uh, that, very easy. And problem. there is a, a massive, massive market as well. <laughs> Huge market. Uh, yeah, it, it ticks a lot of boxes. So I did that, and do you know, yeah, I had clever. such fun. I the mar I've never enjoyed marketing more. It was fun, and it was sassy, and it was brutal, and it was honest. And I mean, ultimately, I was just teaching women self-love, self-respect and boundaries, right? When they got inside yeah. the container. But of course you can't sell self-love, self-respect and self-boundaries without it being tangible and without it solving a problem. So I was doing all this stuff around dating and it was such fun. And then I met this woman whose name I won't uh, disclose, but for various reasons, but we decided to do a project <laughs> tell <us> the story. together. <laughs> I'll tell you the yeah. story though. We decided to do this project together. She was uh, deep into the world of manifestation and I was obviously a dating coach and she was like, we could do this really cool event together. We'll call, we'll call it manifest your man. And I was like, Oh my God, that sounds great. And she was such like, there is one name. problem, such a great name. She was like, there is one small kind of problem. And I was like, yeah. And she was like, well, I'm gay. And I was like, well, I don't think that's a problem at all. You're here talking about the manifesting stuff. I'm here talking about the dating stuff. Anyway. So we threw this. Maybe huge we call event. it manifest your person. You manifest your person. <laughs> yeah. And, um, so we throw this huge, big event and there were, we didn't know what the fuck we were doing. <laughs> we really didn't. We were so green. Um, but we did somehow we managed to get 200 women in a room, which is phenomenal. Yeah, that free is event even now. Yes. Really amazing. We, we worked really hard at that part of it. What we didn't work very hard on was the selling part of it. So I think about eight people signed up or something. And, um, and that, you know, whatever you, you take the knocks, especially in those early days. Anyway, whilst we were creating this, this thing together, we completely fell in love with each other. And it was the first time I had ever been 
in a non-heterosexual relationship. And it really knocked the wind out of my sails because, you know, here I am promoting myself and my brand as a heterosexual woman who helps other heterosexual women find heterosexual relationships with heterosexual men. And I'm now entering this relationship with a woman. So things went quite south quite quickly in terms of work um i stopped showing up in the same way whenever i did show up the energy wasn't really there i really didn't want to tell anyone because you know i I was trying to figure it out myself what it all meant and going through my own kind of not dark night of the soul but you know my own integration with it yeah um and i didn't care that my business wasn't going very well because i was falling in love and falling in love is the tit like yeah. how good is falling in love and so i kind of threw myself into the relationship and i kind of allowed business to i know you know existing on savings all of a sudden and not many sales coming in and then in the june of that year my mum died Oh no! And it was oh, M. such oh, a shock. I, I was not expecting that. Mm. It was um, so that my girlfriend at the time and I we got together in the February. Yeah, and my mum died in the June, June the twenty first, and she'd had cancer. She's had cancer for about three and a half years or so, and then was in remission, and then it came back, and and I was there when she died, and. Oh, that's it good. It doesn't matter how prepared you are. It was such no. a shock. <laughs> it was yeah. just such an untethering. You just can't imagine life without them. And so, no. therefore, when they're not there, you kind of go, this isn't my life anymore. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it and it brings up all sorts of – it's like it's like a mortality slap. Mm. You know, you are acutely aware of your own mortality yes. and suddenly and – Oh, it's just, it's such a, it's, it was such a trip, um, the whole experience. And I came back to Melbourne. I'm I'm surprised by that actually as well, because, well, I guess you had the the girlfriend, but, but you obviously have a great relationship with your dad and with your sisters. So wasn't there Mm. a pull to go back and live in England and be near them? Um, Or was it good to get away? No, I think... By that time, I had probably realized that my life, to to move back to England would mean to start my life again. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, You know, all of my friends by this time in the UK had children. Literally Mm -hmm. every single person I knew had a child by that time. And they were all living in different places. Like, where would I even go? And, And my sisters had young families at the time as well. And so their attention was on their families. Yeah. Um. Uh, that's not to say we didn't band together. We we refer to that time as the time of we call ourselves the clunky chadborns because um, grief does some very odd things to you. So everything we did was kind of clunky and weird, and none of us knew what we were doing. But we're we're very proud of how we came together and honoured mum in that time. But I yeah. never felt like should I move back to England? Never. Right. Um, and also helped that I had a girlfriend here. So yes. got back on a plane, came back, and you know, but I mean, again because I'd been bedside literally bedside with mum for about a month so again no clients no money coming in no marketing content going out um and you know probably now I could take a month off my business completely and it would be okay because I've got the systems in place and the 
maturity and of the business. And people are me. used to doing things remotely and things like that now, which Absolutely. wasn't normal in those days no. either. All of my marketing was through like face-to-face workshops and stuff back then and in terms of selling and stuff. So, you know, I kind of came back and realized, shit, I am broke. And I was still in this relationship and I still felt really incongruent and I didn't know how to rebrand and I didn't know what I was doing. And I I just didn't have the experience behind me, probably all the emotional resilience behind me at at that moment to, to be able to pivot quickly. Yeah. Yeah. So things were a bit sludgy, I guess is the best way to say that until the October of that year when this girlfriend who I was so in love with, I was totally and utterly in love with this woman. Um, and she just turned around completely out of nowhere one day and was like, I, I don't want to do this with you anymore. And, and I'm off. I'm gone. Oh, no. And then three days after that, I find out that she, um, was it three days or a week or something? I don't know. Time's so blurry. But um, very, very shortly after that, um, I found out that she was now in a relationship with one of my best friends. Oh, my God. And M. so I... That yeah, year was your Anna the year, 2017. Yeah, it was oh, the year. Oh my god! So here I am. I was at the end of 2017, and I'd also I'd hurt my ankle, and I, I was doing a lot of running at the time, and it was a great stress stress relief for me. And I'd rolled my ankle, and I remember this one evening. It was the very beginning of November, and I was standing in my living room. And my ankle was throbbing and I couldn't wait bear on it. And I was just heartbroken and I missed my mum, and I didn't have any money and my business wasn't doing anything. And I felt so broken and I knew myself well enough to know that I needed not to be alone at that moment. And I picked up the phone and I called the wisest woman that I know. Her name is Kim. She's a great friend of mine. She lives about four blocks away from me. And I right. picked up the phone and I said, Kim, I'm struggling and I need some help. And she turned around and she said, well, I'm making risotto. Come (laughs) over now. And I said, okay, what does that mean? She's like, I can't leave the stove, but you come over to me. And because I couldn't, basically couldn't walk on this leg, I had to get a taxi. And so just four blocks, but I had to call an Uber. And I got in the Uber and I, when I cry, I don't know about you, but you know, those people that cry and look delicate, I cry and it's like my whole face swells and my features try and move away from each other as much as possible. Like it's so unattractive. And I was kind That's of walking, a great out, walking out to the taxi with this limp and like my swollen, I look like the hunchback of Notre Dame or something. It was just like got into the taxi and the Uber driver was very classic, keeping to the script hello, how are you? Have you had a good day? (laughs) Tell me about your day. And so I was just trying trying really hard to navigate a conversation with this guy. And we go pull out of the sort of road that I lived on in in, onto the main, main strip of road. And he turned around and he was like, are you happy? And I said, I beg your pardon. He was like, are you happy with your life? And obviously Uh my, my internal rage was saying no. And I opened my mouth because I do tend to just speak my truth. And I opened my mouth and I so expected the word no to come out and the word yes came out. And it was so funny. I was like, why have I just told this man I'm happy with my life? And I couldn't work it out. Anyway, I got to Kim's house and she fed me risotto and she made me feel a bit better. And she actually said something to me then, which has stuck with me ever since. She said, it feels like the universe is shitting on you right now. And I get that. But the universe is like a PT. And right now you don't want to lift the next weight. You don't want to do another rep. You don't want to finish this workout, but you are going to have to. 
And one day, maybe not tomorrow or next week or next month, but one day you're going to wake up and you're going to look in the mirror and you are going to see that you are leaner, that you are more toned, that you are more resilient and that you have more tenacity than ever before. And you're going to be grateful for this time. And it's okay if you don't see that now. I told you, she's the wisest woman I know. Yeah, she is. She is. Amazing friend. And I love that analogy as well. Yeah, I I, I was feeling like she was going to say, and when, and one day you'll wake up and realize you've got muscles now and you can lift those weights. You can do anything. You can it's do anything. It's just such a great analogy. Isn't it? So I went home that yeah. night and I felt, I definitely felt better. And I was like, I'm going to get through this. This is all going to be okay. And I still came back to this idea of like, why did I tell the taxi driver that I was okay when I'm not okay? And then it hit me in meditation the next morning. Like life is a paradox and two things can be true at the same time. In fact, all of the time, two things are true. I can be having a real shit time and it can be really hard right now. And I can recognize that I actually have a really wonderful life and I have opportunity and I have privilege and both of those things can be held at the same time. And I think the other thing that came to me was this idea that, um, because through this relationship with this woman who was very deep into manifestation, I'd gotten very much into this idea of like, I'm doing the right thing. I'm doing what the universe is telling me to do. I'm doing the vision board. I'm doing the visualization. I'm attaching myself to my dreams. I'm, you know, doing the internal work. I'm clearing the resistance. I'm doing the energy work. And life still didn't fucking work out the way that I wanted it to. (laughs) Shit still happens. People still die. People leave relationships, people get sick, you know, financial downturns happen. These are parts of life that you cannot manifest or wish or vision board yourself out of. Like you have to learn how to deal with those parts and you can still be happy while those things happen. You can still live a whole and true and good life while those things are happening. And the next day, literally the next day, I jumped onto a Facebook Live. It's the first one I'd done in months. And I thought, no one's going to join, so I'm just going to speak my truth. It really doesn't matter. And I spoke to this concept that, you know, life is full of problem and we've got to stop trying to live a life without problem because it's it's never going to happen. It's impossible. Yeah, It's impossible. What we need to do is we need to build the spiritual and the emotional resilience to deal with problem in a way that means that when it happens as painful as it is and as hard as it is, it's not going to break us and that we are not going to be beholden to that pain for the rest of our lives, that it is transient and that we can breathe through it and that our attitude to it will ultimately define our experience of it. And before I knew it, this video had been shared and it had all these likes and it had all these comments and, and people who had, I'd assumed would never follow me again. Oh, it's so nice to see you back here. I really resonate with this message. And that's, that's when I think I coined the term unashamedly human. You know, it's okay that we're in pain. Yeah. It's okay that we have bad days. It's, you know, we are never going to be protected from the brutality of life, but that doesn't mean that we can't live a wonderful one. And then in the January, I think I, I got my very first paid keynote. And, um, and after that, I had a big swarm of people following me on social media. And I just knew I had to capitalize on that straight away. And I, I launched my first online eight week program. Yeah. I think it was called, it was called life of your dreams. Yeah. And, and it was about, yeah, building this, this idea of, you know, consciously creating the life that you want to live whilst being 
spiritually aware that we live in a world of unpredictability and that at some point bad things are going to happen to you. That's right. So how Uh, do you want to deal with those bad things? Oh, my God. Em, I could Mm. just talk to you forever. That is so profound and right and it's actually kind of a it's we've almost come full circle Mm. Um, but we're running out of time and I have just absolutely loved talking to you so thank you for sharing your story I can't imagine anyone listening to this wouldn't want to get to know you what is what is the best way for people to get hold of you so I'm really active on Instagram. So M <laughs> That's why I don't my... see you very much That's anymore. That's why you never see me. Um, <laughs> or you can join my free Facebook group, which is called Unashamedly Human with Emily Chadbourne. And I also have a podcast of the same name, Unashamedly Human. So yeah, feel oh, free fantastic. to join me on those platforms. Brilliant. Well, listen, thank you so, so much. I can't wait to share your story now and thank and you. see what you do next. Thank you. Yeah, me too. Who knows? That's the unpredictability. Hey? That's the beauty of it all, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. One adventure. <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed this episode of She's the Boss Chats. For more information and to find out about our other initiatives, including our weekly lunch for female founders and our TV show, go to she'stheboss.com.au. 